This is episode 296 with former semi-pro hockey player, gate retraining specialist, and top-down running form expert, Paul McKinnon. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new here, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner, and one of my favorite running memories is finishing in the top 10 in New England in the 3,000-meter steeplechase. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime through strengthrunning.com, on Instagram at JasonFitz1, or on the Strength Running YouTube channel. We're supported by my absolute favorite electrolyte company, Elemental Labs. They make high sodium, zero sugar, and absolutely delicious flavors that are perfect for when the weather is starting to get a little warmer and your sweat rate increases. Prevent the symptoms of electrolyte imbalances like headaches, cramps, fatigue, and weakness with Element. And not to mention, it's my go-to morning drink when I've had a few adult beverages the night before. And they're now offering you a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning. They'll send you a sample pack with one packet of every flavor so that you can try them all out before committing. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to claim your free gift. Next, a big thanks to the Gold Coast Marathon in Queensland, Australia. I fell in love with Australia when I visited for six weeks way back in 2013, and I stayed in Coolangatta, which is in the larger city of Gold Coast, Australia. It is stunningly beautiful, and I want you to experience it too. Go to goldcoastmarathon.com.au to sign up for the race on July 2nd. 60% of finishers say they've run a PR on this flat and fast course. And there's something for everyone. You can run the marathon, or you can opt for the half marathon, the 10K, 5K. They even have kids' races at 2- and 4-kilometer distances. There's also competitive wheelchair events for the marathon and the 10K. Early bird pricing does end on April 28th, so don't wait. Go to goldcoastmarathon.com.au to sign up for your next destination race. My guest today is Paul McKinnon. Paul is from Melbourne, Australia, and has worked with many high-level athletes over the years to improve their running form. He's a former semi-pro hockey player who traveled across Australia and Europe, giving him access to elite coaches, facilities, training methods, equipment, and ideas. He's now an expert on gait retraining and, as you'll hear, has actually been working with former podcast guest and 219 marathoner Peter Bromka. We discuss his unique top-down approach to technique, the importance of arm swing, which really surprised me, what red flags he looks for first, his favorite cues, and his thoughts on cadence, foot strike, and the forward lean. Don't miss my favorite form cues with our form cues cheat sheet available for free at strengthrunning.com cues. And now without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Paul McKinnon. All right. It's good to be with you, Paul. Thanks for making the time. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. We were put in touch by Peter Bromka. He's a 
former competitor of mine when we were both in college, and uh, I've had him as a guest on the podcast. I looked this up, episodes 95, 195, and episode 216. So he's been uh, almost a regular on the show for his insights on the marathon and especially the Boston Marathon because he's run it so many times. And again, this weekend. That's right. Right. Uh, This will come out after he's run the Boston Marathon. So hopefully he's had a wonderful performance. And you've been helping him recently with his form, helping him become more economical before he runs the Boston Marathon. So yeah, I would love to, to start, Paul, with your approach to evaluating running form. You know, when you start working with a runner, what are you first looking at? What's that like first thing that goes through your head when you start seeing either video of someone running or someone in person? So the first thing I look at is top down. So what are they doing with arms and shoulders really? So to understand how they are then going to influence down through into the torso and, and, and into the legs. So my, um, my method is, is what I would call a top down, but it is probably more a little bit like middle out and the middle out being torso trying to make sure or trying to get that in the best position, um, trying to get it as still as possible. Um, and to do that, you have to work on arms first. So that's why it becomes starting a little bit more of the, the top down and starting with the arms. From there, like changing that, you start to put it in. If you, if you get the movements in the right place and the right angle for that individual um, and make the changes, then that influences the torso, but then we can change the shape depending on how they hold their body. And from then, even though all of those things are going to influence what what the individual is doing with their legs, then you can actually start to focus a little bit more on um, leg patterning, um, how, where, the sequence of movements. uh, And then, yeah, that's that's where I'd start with. And and that's kind of the process of how I'd go down. What are some of the bigger red flags that you see more consistently among runners? You know, are there some things that as soon as someone starts running, you know, maybe two or three big issues right off the bat that you can notice just with the naked eye? Um, I'd say the three either most common or the things that I'd see glaringly is firstly like an arm swing that is is throwing the body out of shape and creating rotational movements um, or sideways forces um, or restrictions of movement. We've got to think like the arms are the counter movers to the legs. So a restriction of movement there is going to be a restriction of movement in the legs. And that's not what we want when we're trying to get a nice open, um, free flowing pattern of movement of the legs. Uh, the next would be a torso position. And unfortunately, this part is coached, I think, or is taught and, and, and um. Bronco told me the same thing, but you would have taught, been taught the same thing about, you know, get your chest out and, you know, feel so you can feel the lungs with air, so you can run tall and have that position. But that thoracic extension, what it does is actually limits lung capacity. It changes your center of mass and it changes the range of motion that you can get through like a femur swing in that upper leg. So that would be the most common. You see people who are extended or arched through um, the middle of the back. And then the last one being... The upper body, we talk about being the counter mover, but it's also a coordinated pattern of movement between the upper body and the lower half of the body. Now we think about there's two parts of the leg that that can be coordinated, irrespective of the arm swing. It can be perfect. It can be not so perfect. 
but it has to pattern into one part of the two parts of the leg. So if it's not patterned into the top part of the leg, we pattern into the bottom part of the leg, which creates that overstride and creates a, a bigger movement. It's a longer leg movement rather than an upper leg dominant or primary dominant movement. So they're probably the three real major things that I see. But even within them, there's going to be so many discrete movements and patterns and positions. And that's where it starts to get you know a lot more complicated. Yeah, for sure. This is such a complicated movement. Um, now, I've always been taught, Paul, that the arms are sort of like the counterweight to what the legs are doing. And you should really focus on the legs first, and then the position or movement of the arms will follow. And it seems like you have the opposite approach. And I'd, I'd love to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, complete opposite. I think if, you, if you're trying to create, you know, like a femur swing or a range of motion that we, we want to have in that upper leg, if you're continually holding your arms down, so you know, I don't want to use... Bronker is an example, but we will because we brought him up a couple of times. And there's a message he sent to me not long after. He goes, how does anyone let, let me just have my arms hanging so low when I run? He's been trying to change his leg pattern, his, his movement, and increase a range of motion. That doesn't influence arms because it's the legs and the ground. So everything in between, it can start to influence, but not above. So what we want to start to think about is from top all the way down, relates or creates or affects the relationship between you and the ground so we can't sort of start in the middle and then expect the top and the bottom to be changing we actually want to go the other way so with the arms if we're thinking about them being a counter in your words weight actually more a counter movement they're not countering the weight it's actually much more of a, a movement a time a timing um, but also something as simple as lift so when we're running, we're trying to create this flight and float and bounce and spend as much time in the air as possible and as little time on the ground as possible. And obviously that's going to be varied in regards to like the paces we're running. So we're not just trying to bound, but there's going to be a range where you want to be closer to that end rather than on the ground more than in the air. Now, to create lift, you need upwards forces. So if your movements or if your hands are down around your you know, pockets or your hips, where you're creating a downward force rather than an upward swing, it doesn't assist with creating that lift. So you can actually create movements that take away from the ability to get that pop off the ground or that flight off the ground if your arm movements and then sometimes if your shoulder movements are creating flatter or down movements or sideways movements. So they have quite a fair few roles. And what they don't do is you know, create power. You know, like your arms aren't touching the ground, so you can't create any power through them. But what they can do is tell the legs to increase their range of motion or do that increase the range of motion faster, so more times. So you kind of set the tempo and set the movement from that upper body, and then you can actually follow on. Now, if it doesn't directly follow down the legs, what you can do is tap back into the arms if they are working correctly. Is this similar to like when, a, when an endurance runner tries to sprint and I'm remembering back to my college days here where we tried to emulate the sprinters and we tried to have this much more exaggerated, uh, uh, arm carriage than we normally would just because it helped with like, like I, I made that mistake of saying counterweight earlier. It's really a counter yeah. movement and yeah. you're creating this big movement in the top half of your body and it's almost like your legs have to respond to that is am i thinking yeah. about this in a in a slightly correct way yeah yeah, yeah. so 
the other thing that I'd say though, if we start to go back into our, we're talking about geeking out a little bit, I kind of geek out a little bit about, you know, physics and levers and that sort of stuff because it directly correlates to it. Some of the things that I'll see within, within, within sprinters, I think sometimes the arms are even too big for sprinting, you know, like if it's a big open angle at the elbow, that means the lever is bigger, which means you have to work harder to go through your range of motion to a rest movement, come back and such a rate of knots. Now, I wouldn't say you want to come super, super tight or even it's quite difficult because of that force that's being um, applied through the arm. However, if you can keep quite a shorter lever, you can go through that same range of motion. You can do it quicker and without as much effort. So there's probably a little bit of a, a coming together. I think even in some cases, some of the sprinters are too big. But what you're saying is, yeah, big range of motion. But then it actually ties into more about like what it feels like to you so you feel like i'm applying all this force i'm doing this really big movement this is you know i'm feeling fast when we actually can actually pair it back a little bit and doesn't want to have to feel such a big effort and a big fast movement because you still want to feel relaxed at high pace so there's got to be like again coming back to that there's got to be kind of a sweet spot in between the two but yeah you're correct by thinking that range of motion or that bigger range of motion is a good way for and maybe for a distance runner to exaggerate that movement so they can go, oh, okay, I want this big explosive open pattern of movement. I am now really fascinated with my arm swing. And <laughs> I, I don't think my arm swing is very good, Paul. And, and maybe we can use myself as a, <laughs> uh, a case study right now. So I believe my arm swing can be a little bit crossing the midline. I do carry my arms fairly low. Um, if you were to look at me, my elbows might be a little bit too far out to the side just because I'm kind of, you know, increasing my, you know, space across the side of me like that. And, you know, have you seen this pattern among other runners and, and what might it tell you about my running form? If that's the only thing that, you know, um, we could do a couple of things. So it might mean that you as an individual without seeing your run, you might restrict the movement because you it sounds like you know you don't want to come across that midline and you're like okay well i'm going to stop that movement a little bit but it's going to be like a little bit more of a shorter movement so straight away it could restrict the range of motion that you can get through your legs what i couldn't tell you if i didn't see below the hips i couldn't tell you what pattern of movement you are making in regards to upper leg or lower leg dominant and therefore where you are striking the ground or the time you're spending on the ground i could tell you if it would be a little bit more one-sided like right side dominant or left side dominant because you can see some rhythms and movements and you might rotate a little bit further on one side than the other. Um, what I would know that if you're doing that real flat sideways movement, you're not getting as much lift off the ground as what you could be. So you're either spending longer on the ground or you're working harder through the legs to create that pop. I think that the easiest way I explain it to, to my athletes is like if we use that, that force direction in, in an example of jumping, if we throw our arms up in the air to create a vertical force, it allows us to either jump higher or to jump without as much effort, energy required through the legs to get off the ground. When we're thinking about running, we want the less effort per step. It's not so much the actual height, it's making it easier to get off the ground each time. So it's about this movement that comes up. But if you've got that sideways movement, you either have to work harder or you don't quite get off the ground as much. Yeah, that really helps me crystallize this concept in my head because, 
you know, I've done a, a max vertical jump in the past. And yeah, you have this very exaggerated, huge upward swing with your arms because it really helps you kind of like open up your body and, and create that counter movement, like we mentioned before. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, why wouldn't we want a similar phenomenon when we're out there running? You know, it's not, we're not going for max vertical height, but we are going for an efficient you know, hop from one leg to the other that, you know, does have some vertical movement to it. Um, yeah. And if we, if we then add, so if you've got two arms, which are smaller levers, they're smaller masses and particularly with distance runners, there's not the, the, the most mass going through arms. Um, but then if you actually time it right, and if it's the correct movement and you have that you know, knee drive, but it's much more like a femur swing and it's the forward portion of that femur swing. Now, all of a sudden the three limbs that aren't on the ground are actually assisting that one limb that is on the ground by three of them actually swinging up and slightly forward. It is drawing that you know, torso, the whole center of mass off the ground to allow that leg to extend a little bit easier, a little bit better to create that pop. And what you're really trying to do is trying to make the easiest job possible for that leg on the ground to get you off the ground. I want to ask you another question where I think you might be blowing my mind in another area of running form. You know, I think the conventional wisdom in this area says that there are some runners who shouldn't try to change their form. You know, like, let's go back to Peter Bromka. He's been running for, you know, 25 years, probably, if not more. He's a very accomplished runner. And there would be a lot of coaches who would say, let's not fix what ain't broken right now. This guy is successful. He's obviously has longevity in the sport. But it seems like what I'm hearing is that there's always something that you can improve. And just because you're either having success or your injury rate is very low, doesn't mean that you should just automatically think that your running form is beyond reproach, right? So how do you think about this concept of, you know, some people just shouldn't work on their form? I think there's a, there's a couple of answers to those couple of parts to the answer. One being, I think for too long, people have relied on, okay, well, don't, don't change it unless it's broke because they're kind of coming from a safe place that they can make changes, you know, when the person is broken rather than actually everyone who is running is on some spectrum of some sort. Now they might be down the back end of that spectrum because they are broken or they're getting um, recurrent injuries. But, and if you get to that point where they're not in that area, what they're doing is they're trying to improve performance. Like when you're going to improve the technique correctly, I think that's another part of the, the, the answer you are going to get a performance improvement. Now, if that means you can run more because you're not getting injured, you're not getting stressed in certain parts of the body, that is going to be a performance improvement. If you are fresh and injury-free and then you get a, an improvement, then that improvement becomes even more of a performance side of it. It's just depending on where you are starting on that spectrum. And we talk about, so we think about Bronco, like he's, um, you know, he's had his limitations through like hip range and always getting sore through that area or getting sore through kind of lower back. So he's been getting it, but he doesn't limit him per se in regards to time off. If you can open that up and change it, then you can actually allow him to get through his sessions or get through his you know marathon blocks without having that same consistent, you know, wear pattern or stress loads in the body. The other part to it is a, uh, I think for a long period of time, because it has been, you know, feet and legs first, it's understandable why 
I think running technique hasn't always been like the first place or first port of call for change. But I personally think it's, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. It can actually be changed quite easily. It takes consistency and repetitiveness, like repetitive movement to create habit. However, if you teach it correctly, because it is the body and the ground, if it is a, if it is a genuine improvement on that technique, it should feel better to the athlete. Not just, oh, that, you know, that's the way to do it. That's good. Yeah, keep doing that and you'll find improvement. You should have a real proprioceptive awareness if it's taught correctly. Like, this is what it feels like to do your old way. This is what it feels like to do it within your queue. Now, what does it feel like to you? So for me, I don't actually tell them it's better. I ask them what feels. So for, you know, again, we use it wrong, but he's like, holy sh... I don't know if you can swear on it. I, I normally swear quite a lot, so... Raining it in quite a I'm lot. I'm fine with it, um, Paul. I'm from Boston. So. Okay, good. Okay, cool. I do normally swear quite a lot, so that's uh, that's, that's, that's handy to know. Um, he was like, "Holy shit!" Like I've got range through my feet. It's like I'm not feeling tightened up. I'm actually getting off the ground. You know, I, he goes, "We changed something for him through his shoulders and his arm swing. We kind of, I kind of dovetailed two different things together. But everything he felt was hips, feet, ground contact time." and how that actually related to the ground. So once you actually ask them, it's like, okay, now what is it doing? So run new way out and think about femur swing, knee lift, come the old way back, tell me what is the difference? So they're having direct comparisons internally. So coming back to your original question, I think if it is a genuine improvement in that person, they will be able to feel it. Because they can feel it, they are more likely to do it. Because like anything, you're like, shoot, like of course I want to do it. It feels better, it feels lighter, it feels freer. Um, my last almost counter question would be why is running the only movement almost known to humans that is no, 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 don't fix it unless it's broken. Every other movement known to man from Tiger Woods still gets golf lessons. We've got swimmers who are elite swimmers who are getting technique form changes all the time and making sure that they're always just kind of getting brought back into, into line. Kipchoge thinks about form through his whole 42.2 kilometers. Like he's continually thinking, what do I need to do? What do I make sure that I'm doing so I can repeat this movement over and over and over again? To think that this is the only movement that shouldn't be changed, I think, like you just think, wow, how's, how's that possible? I just think it hasn't been done correctly for a while. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. And, and I'm really glad that you brought up this this idea of the fact that it should actually feel better. You should be feeling better if we're improving your form. And I think that's a key piece that's been missing in a lot of discussions around improving running technique over the last few decades. Because, you know, everyone is is frequently saying uh, people have different body types and we can't really talk about an optimal type of form because, you know, some people have long legs, short legs, long arms and, and everything in between. And often that can really present some struggles when you're trying to give some general running form advice. But I think just this idea that, hey, if this is a good fix for you, you're going to feel better when you're out there running, which is like the most basic and fundamental aspect to all of this, right? Like if we're going to change your form, you should feel better. It should. Well, because A, I mean, it should feel like an improvement. And and B, if it feels better, again, as I said, you're more likely to want to um, repeat it so that it does become habit. The, the, there's, it's very rare that you, you have just the body and then your environment that you can actually work off. So with running, it is. It's literally just you and the ground. 
however you move and you position yourself and how that whole thing comes together will directly relate to how you or the relationship you have with that ground. So if there is an improve, that relationship should slightly change or the movement within the body should feel like an improvement from that change. Now, the other one that could be similarly described like that is like swimming because it's the body and water. So once you actually change or make an improvement for that individual, I don't know a lot about swimming. I'm not a great swimmer, but I know someone who does very similar to what I do here in Melbourne. And he says the same. He goes, as soon as you actually create a positive change from a cue, that person will feel better in the water. It will be directly correlated in times or or, um, effort, but they will feel better moving through the water because it's just the body and the water. Now, it is different to a skill acquisition to like we use golf. You have a club, you have a ball, you have an environment that's changing, whether you're in the sand, depending on how good you are, in the rough, (laughs) on the ground, you know, what you're doing, the, the club length changes. So there are variabilities through that. Now, if you don't directly hit the ball in the sweet spot and hit it down straight, although you have a good, a better swing, it's easy to think you can't directly correlate my improvements to what's just happened. The repetitive nature, if you get better and better and better at it, because there are those third and fourth parties and the fifth party being the environment is different. Running, it's you on the ground. So coming back to if you do have that improvement, if you do improve the right things or change the right things to create an improvement, you can actually get the individual athlete to feel what those improvements are. You've said that there are two variables when it comes to form, you and the ground. Do shoes come into play here at all? Because I understand that your mechanics are going to change slightly based on the type of footwear that you're wearing. And, you know, there's obviously those very big maximalist shoes with a a very high stack height. And then you can get into some more traditional track spikes, which are just completely different. Do you think about shoes as, as uh, another factor that's changing your form? They do. And obviously more recently, they, they change the relationship with the ground. I don't think they change your form. Nothing. You can't put a pair of shoes on. They're going to change your arm swing. So that's not going to directly correlate at what it might do. And, and depending on how that individual moves, it might get them forward and off the ground sooner. So it might, might make that person increase their cadence. It might give them a little bit more spring off the ground. It can change those relationships for sure. But if they are a lower leg dominant movement, if they're you know, overstriding, it's not going to change them into an upper leg dominant movement and landing closer to their center of mass, but it will directly change how they relate to the ground. Yes. But the mechanics, no. And this is the difference between economy and efficiency. So it might improve or help economy. So if we use, you know, like the Vaporfly studies about um, there's an improvement of the 4%, but that's an average. So when they did their testing, they had improvements from 2% all the way up to, I think it was 7% depending on the individual. Now, what they found was the people that got the most, so the 4 to 7% are the ones that actually move really well with good biomechanics, a good body position. So they actually get more out of the shoe the better that you move biomechanically. Now, you still get an improvement in economy from the shoe if you are you know, overstriding or if you're spending a lot more time on the ground than what you want to compared to the um, flight time, but nowhere near as much as the top end. So... It can improve your economy and you get more improvement in economy, but it doesn't change your efficiency. 
And efficiency is more about how you do that movement, whereas economy is how much it costs you in energy sense or oxygen sense. This is making me think that runners should probably spend $300 on a form evaluation with some cues and technique fixes before you spend the $300 on a fancy pair of shoes. So I've got this, <laughs> so the guy, um, there's a guy called Chris Cook, who is a, like a senior uh, foot developer at, at Nike. And he does a lot of the Vaporfly, Alphafly um, design. So he's, he's, he's the guy. And he came across me uh, once, what was it about? Probably three years ago now, because he wanted to do some some form stuff. He's very, very, very intelligent um, and very inquisitive just about how to get more improvements. And it was on the back of this whole 2 to 7% change. It's like, okay, well, if we've got these athletes who are moving well already, how can we actually bring some of our athlete, other athletes or just general individuals actually getting closer to that 7% because of movement patterns? So he went... He went and saw a few people, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And then he did a session with me over online on FaceTime. And in the very first session, what I'll do is like I'll get the person, you do the um, proprioception awareness and getting, getting and feeling what they're currently doing so they know what it feels like to do their old way. Teaching the cue, I got him comfortable with the cue and then compared the new way versus the old way. And what I did and what I do in all my sessions, is just over like a 40-meter um, 50 yard kind of length and I'll get them to run out doing their new way and I'll get them to run back doing that old way and I'll count steps so it's just got into this I'll always just count steps over and over and over and for him it was like 44 steps old way and 40 steps new way so there's a four step difference in how much or how many steps it took him to get from A to B and then B back to A so there's a 10% difference and I said to him, I never thought I'd be telling the guy who you know, makes the 4% that I just got him 10%. He's like, shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's, it's genuinely like how much you can actually get, like from real low hanging fruit. And then it just becomes less and less and less. It's still like how much you can get out of it, but there's still improvements. And it is, there's a lot that can be proven from, a lot of improvement that can be got from technique for a lot of individuals. Or you're thinking about like higher end people, like, you know, people like I work with. Galen Rupp and Brett Robinson, Emily Infeld, like they're trying to get micro improvements or they're trying to bring themselves back into a position that they're actually moving really, really well again. So that becomes, you know, smaller benefits, but still for them, they're big benefits. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I really think that this is the next frontier in improving performances, precisely because so few athletes have really gone down this road and, and had their form evaluated by a professional and, and really tried to work on their technique. I think they're, like you said, there's a lot of low hanging fruit here. Uh, one thing that you said earlier that I'd love to highlight, you mentioned, you know, how it's easier to, to learn these habits when you're first starting to run. Can, can you talk about the differences that you might have to incorporate with working with say a new runner versus a runner with you know, uh, a quarter of a century of experience? I think there's there's, um, there's a few different things to it. So someone who's, say, say like yourself, who's, who's run lifetime runner, has got many, many miles under their legs. It's not just about the, the habit that you are creating. It's also about trying to make sure that we do it in such a, such a manner that it is a safe environment to go small change by small change by small change. So you can actually adapt and adopt over time 
until we get to this point. And you can see your point from A down to like end point being quite quite a, a significant change in some cases, but we've taken it in a gradual process. Now, if you think about a lot of the things or a lot of the, the changes that are normally thought about, you know, the first one, and we haven't mentioned it for a reason, is um, foot strike. That's normally the first port of call. It's like, oh, well, you're you know, overstriding, you're heel striking, so you change your foot strike. There's a reason why that person is overstriding and then landing in that manner and not changing that. Sorry, by changing that, he's not changing the mechanics that create that. So what you're trying to do is put this square peg into a round hole. Like, okay, land here, get close to the center of mass. So there's a reason why that, that person's doing it in the first place. And by doing that change, A, is not going to stick. B, it's going to cause a lot of stress on different parts of the lower leg. I think it's like 90 to 95% injury rate for someone who changes or focus on a foot strike pattern change because you're just loading completely different areas with the same type of movements. You're just adding a lever, you're breaking force, and you're putting it in a different area that's just not conditioned. So the gradual process, and again, of that kind of the top down, it's like with small change, which will change down the bottom, small change will change down the bottom, small change, until you get to the point where you can actually make that change. For someone who is just starting, they don't have any of that. So they have zero conditioning in zero parts of their body in zero, in zero manner. So you can go, okay, we could actually probably make quite a significant change and because if you're going to safely build up your training load, we can start off with one minute jog, four minutes walk, and you do that for 30 minutes. So that person might do six minutes jogging, but they're doing it in like a, um, quite a different manner in what they would, but they're kind of building together with their movement and their training load. Because you've got to think, I always think about training loads or load being two pillars. One pillar being... You know, what you do weekly, whether the mileage, the intensity, the frequency of it, and the other load being how you take each step. Now, we can actually manage both of those loads. More often than not, the only load that is really managed is, you know, how much, how frequent, how fast. And it's like, oh, we're starting to get a bit of an injury or you know, we'll back off this. But we can actually change this one as well. Now, we might have to both pack off both. Or we might be able to change and kind of manage and manipulate those two different loads. You might not have to back off so much if we're actually changing where that stress point is as a result of your repetitive movement patterns. That's really interesting. And, and to me, it reminds me very much of, you know, in, in the weightlifting world, there's a strategy called reps to technical failure. And so you're, you're lifting weights and you don't lift till failure. You don't lift until you've done a certain number of reps. You lift until you can't do it with perfect form anymore. And so it sounds like you're, you're doing this with running with some of these newer athletes where, you know, they're only running for a very short period of time. They're including walk breaks afterward, but the time period where they're actually running, they are running, you know, quote unquote, perfectly or, or as perfectly yeah. as they can. Good, 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 yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and there's that, that really important learning process that goes along with it that I think can be quite powerful. Um, there's, um, there's a, like, there's a fair few, I mean, it's, there's a lot of coaching groups around, around the place now, which I think, which is really positive. Some may, may not be overly positive, but like, at least there is some really great coaching available for, for, um, for athletes in regards to if they're just starting or if they're trying to do their marathon. Um, there's a couple of really good ones around here that I work with or I refer to. And I've spoken to a few of them about similar things. It's like we give we give athletes um, like a training program, training structure, and maybe they've got 
you know, repeat efforts or they've got like a, a monofart, like whatever it is about, you know, efforts. And say they've got 400s and they've got a specific time that they're supposed to meet. And normally we think if they're not quite making that time, you know, a good coach will just go, okay, no, just, just stop. Like you got to your eighth, you can see like you're, you're not quite getting, or you just missed out by a second or so, like you're done. However, what I'd see is up until like rep six, you know, form goes out the window and it's just trying to hold on to the pace. And then for six and seven, they might hold the pace. So that's okay in training, you know, scheduling. But now what they're doing is they're practicing just getting through rather than, no, okay, well, you've got to rep six with really great form. Seven started, you know, started to fail a little bit. That's the time you're done. And that might be just because you're fatigued. It might be you didn't sleep. You might be dehydrated. It might be you just can't hold it for that long. The next day or the next week, you might be able to get to eight with really good form. Cool, done. So it's not time-based. It's actually form-based. And conversely, they might be able to get to eight and they're still like in holding really good form, but they're starting to drop off on pace. Same thing, okay? You can't hold a good pace and, and the form. So that's kind of done. So actually using that reps to, to technical failure is a really good way. I hadn't heard it put that way. Or I hadn't heard like that's a, a real method within um, you know, powerlifting, but it is a really great way to put it. So it's not just about fatigue or time failure. It's technical failure too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's especially important for, you know, very competitive runners where they're doing potentially longer, very challenging reps where, you know, if your form is not pretty good for, you know, a thousand meter or a mile repetition, and, and you're really trying to power through that, you could potentially do some, some real damage. And, and I think this strategy is, is likely more helpful for the injury prone athlete who can't really power through, you know, maybe the last rep, you know, for someone who like never gets injured, I might be a little bit more flexible there, but I, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about running workouts sort of as an aside for our listeners here. Um, if you are very injury prone, you know, this might be a really a, a nice way of thinking about when to cut a workout. Um, Paul, I'd love to move on a little bit to cues. I love cues. I've used cues for a very long time in my coaching practice. I know you do too. In your mind, how do you define a form cue or a running cue? Um, a specific movement or position uh, for, for the athlete to hold that will you know, improve or, or, or create change within that athlete. So that cue doesn't always have to be um, you know, a movement-based one. It can be actually that position. So it's like it's a static position but it's a static position in comparison to the one that they are holding. Now that position will create different stress points or you'll need to load differently. So you can actually utilize that awareness or that contrasting method or model between new way, old way for the athlete to feel it. Um, you know, like, yes, there are external, external cues and internal cues, but we're thinking more about how to actually create it within that individual just to create just a, a, a contrasting feel rather than thinking about it in a, like external, internal. How do you use form cues in your practice? Are there, are there any ways in which that, you know, you really like to give runners form cues or, or even are there ways in which runners shouldn't use form cues in their training? In, insofar as what? So what do you mean by how do I use them? Uh, so with your athletes, if you're with them in person and they're, you know, you're on a, a track, say, and you're running 50 yards or meters at a time, um, are you yep. just verbally 
giving direction to these athletes or, or are you demonstrating a cue? I guess it depends on the cue. Could you walk us through a few examples? Well, and, and it can be anything because each individual, like I, I'm from a teaching background originally. So I did physical education teaching with, with sports science, biomechanics as, as my minor. And you, you start to realize that each individual have different learning styles, different learning techniques, and even just the language that they use will determine what language you can use in return. So um, whether it be um, you know, visual, kinesthetic, whatever it is that that person probably relates to best, you start to use them. Now, trying to use everything within the toolbox just to try and make sure that they are aware of what they're supposed to do. So in some cases, it will be like if it is in person, it might be with permission, of course, like directly actually moving them in a manner to get them to feel which range, what line, what direction, or actually trying to create change through it. Yes, also showing so they get a visual um, and then feeling the difference between them and sometimes even recording them to say, okay, look at this, you're doing it, but you could actually do it more because so much of perception versus reality is so off that if there is a change, it often feels so exaggerated for that person until they see it and go, oh, geez, that, that looks normal or that actually doesn't look like I'm doing much at all. You go, yeah, you can actually go further. Oh, shit. You know, so that person can actually utilise what they are doing in a visual sense to then create even more change. But again, going back to it, using anything possible to make sure that they're actually going to get that change rather than that this is the only way it could be done. It's like, okay, well, how else can I think about it? It might be explaining it in a completely different manner for that individual. Or if they've got a, um, a different sporting background, using that example, you know, trying to actually work out how to actually relate it back to their experiences or even, even in like a sometimes thinking about it in like how where they work we're talking about like that whole top down for someone who comes from and this is a weird one like from a um a corporate background it's like using a corporate structure to be able to understand like how this each feeds into each other so that they can actually get like a real direct correlation in their own mind about how that actually relates so it's just using anything you can to make sure that they understand it so that they can then implement it Yeah, Paul, I love this idea of perception versus reality, because I think every runner has had that experience of thinking like they look like Kipchoge when they're out there running and then someone takes a video or they see, you know, some some race footage and they're like, oh, my goodness, I do not look like Kipchoge. And it can be a very it can be a very humbling experience where you're brought back down to earth. Uh, and, And I think we shouldn't trust our perception of how we look when we're running, because you know, it's, it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of our, you know, real movements out there in the real world. And so I I think this idea of just getting some video of yourself and and using that for feedback is, is at least for me, like that really resonates with me because I want, I want as much objective feedback as I can. And I think the, the video is probably the most valuable type of uh, uh, feedback that we can have. Cause it's, you know, the video is not going to lie. That's how you're moving. So I like their optimism that the individuals that think that they're moving like Kipchoge. It's, it's always nice to hear like they're optimistic about their movement patterns, which is really cool. But as you said, the, the perception and reality between the two are normally very, very, very different and the videoing themselves. So I'll often just recommend anyone who, who wants to get an understanding of what they're doing to record themselves. 
So they do have a little bit more of a, a better perception. The, the gap will be then, oh, how do I change it? Um, and it's more like, geez, like that doesn't look at all like a, where would I start, which is fine. Um, and also the, I mean, the, the online stuff that I've got is, is very much set out. So I'll actually, you know, each video sets out to say, okay, record yourself, have a look what your arms are doing, you know, kind of explaining what to look at and then going through all those cues in regards to like top down. So it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit more generic than what it is if I was to do one-on-one whether it be on FaceTime or whether it be in person, but at least it gives them the process and it gives them an opportunity to actually get an understanding of what does that look like? What, what movements are being made? What position am I in when I'm being, or when I'm running and how does this all directly relate to each other? Because then it does give them that, that proprioceptive feedback. Do you have maybe one, two, three, near universal cues that most runners would likely benefit from that we could talk about here. Um, you know, I, I know everyone's a unique N of one sort of case study on themselves, but you know, from your experience working with a lot of different types of runners, what are some cues that most runners might benefit from? I think, I mean, we started with that arm swing, like firstly, actually getting um, that arm swing in the right position moving in the correct line for the individual. So when you think about each individual differences, like trying to say that everyone should swing their arms in a straight line goes completely against the anatomy of each individual. So the glenohumerus joint, you know, the ball and socket joint, the, the, the socket portion does not sit at 90 degrees. So to create a 90 degrees, we actually have to retract scapulas to put ourselves in a position like you're doing now to create a straight line. Now, what you're doing is you're stretching through the chest, you're putting tension in the shoulders, which is going to restrict movement. So we want to actually then start to, to try and find the correct line for each individual when they're in their neutral shoulder position and swing on that line so that they are swinging on their joint angle with a movement that is allowing that that lift. So yeah, already you're starting to create a lift movement or an up movement from that swing. Now, if you swing too straight on the backswing, what you will do is you'll tighten up through scapulas. So you're actually thinking about how do I actually create a line or what line is my joint on so that I can actually swing without tightening up through there. Now, for some, that kind of thinks almost or, or contradicts what was definitely what a lot of people have coached about swinging a straight line, get everything going in this straight line. But it's our torso that we want in good position because this holds the majority of the mass. And by swinging on our joint angles, it allows this to be in good position and switched off. Because the other thing is, you know, be relaxed through your shoulders. But if you're going to try and swing straight, there's no way you can actually be relaxed anymore. So it's trying to find the correct line for each individual. And that's what I'd call like a running triangle. And each, each running triangle is slightly different. And it's about trying to find yours and then trying to create the correct swing on that joint angle. And I'd suggest, I was thinking about the amount of people who'd turn up with, you know, like a really, really good to perfect swing. One in 50. Wow. It's that low? It's that low. I am definitely in the 98%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's not that, you know, like there aren't, it doesn't just go off to horrible. You know, again, there's that range, but there's, there's, 
for the majority of individuals, there is improvement to be had simply from actually getting a good arm swing. And it's how you hold, what angle you hold that, not only in the shoulder, but also what angle are you holding between um, lower arm and upper arm? Because the lower or the bigger, the lower the arm is, or the bigger that angle is. So if we're thinking about, you know, run at 90 degrees, we've got to think about our center of mass is towards the wrist now. And so that lever becomes longer and it's hard to swing up or create lift with a longer lever. So the more open you are through that elbow angle, the harder it is to create that lifting movement and the more likely you are to restrict movement. Now, if you go the other way and you're actually super tight, then what you're doing is you're creating tension at the other end. So again, we don't want to just be up here and holding and just like tightness through here because we do want range of motion and swing. But what we're trying to do is create a shorter lever so that lever is easier to swing. Yeah, I definitely think I am the large uh, elbow angle type of runner. I think I need to tighten that up a little bit as well as, you know, improve my, um, you know, my I know semantics, like it's words matter, like tighten it up. You can actually get tight. So it's like close the angling, close closing the angle. angle. Yeah. Because it can, you know, people give meaning to words that, you know, that they think is correct. So you've got to be really like the way I explain it to individuals, like really clear and concise. So there's no room for wiggle room or there's no room for play. Not that they have to be strict and structured and it's like, no, no, you do it like this in a robotic form. It's just like, don't give the individual an opportunity to kind of, you know, express themselves in some jazz movements. Like that's, that's not what we want. We do want some clean and clear movements within their, um, uh, within their parameters, because each individual is, is very different in limb length, uh, limb length and then body position and history of exercise. I started doing some stuff with some CrossFit athletes. So you can understand just a much bigger athlete in muscle bowl than, than what a runner is or what a triathlete is, or in, and to a lesser extent, say what some AFL, some Australian rules football players that I work with, you know, they're a little bit more bulked. If you think about the CrossFitters, they're quite bulked. So you go, okay, well, you're going to be limited by some of that range of motion. We're working within their parameters. So it's not just do this, go through this range of motion, do it more. It's like, well, if they're into this big position and they're in that, it's like, we've just got to work within their framework. I'm also very encouraged by the fact that you're not super dogmatic about this. You know, you're not saying you should have this perfect arm socket swing, you know, that, that would sort of be impossible that we're all unique. We all have different, slightly different angles that we prefer to carry our arms. And as long as you're working with your body, then you're probably doing something that is more productive for you as opposed to trying to fit yourself into this very small box of, you know, my arm has to move exactly in this angle. And, and like you said, that sort of goes against our, our anatomy, you know, that that's hard to do. And then it's a, it's hard to do and B it makes other things impossible to do that what we want to do. So like keep shoulders relaxed, keep, you know, traps switched off, keep your, yeah, for me, don't stretch through chest. Like once you stretch through chest, you can't stretch there anymore for breathing. So my whole thing about, you know, arms back, shoulders back, chest out, so you can feel it with air, it limits capacity because you're already stretched where you're going to stretch. So all it will do is go down through diaphragm and all you've got is diaphragm breathing rather than actually being able to have a full complete breath, both sides, top and bottom. 
So once we actually change something that into it is structured straight, you're actually limiting what you can get down the chain. Paul, I have a lot to think about, about running form, about my own form, about how I've been thinking about technique over the years. Um, I would love to ask you a couple rapid fire questions with maybe some shorter abbrevi- abbreviated answers. As you've some... seen, I'm not great at short answers. I'm sorry, but yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll do my best. We're going to do the best we can. Um, yeah. So these are some big topics within the world of running form. Uh, there are also issues that I know a lot of listeners are going to be interested in. Um, we have not talked about cadence. Do no. you recommend a certain number no. of steps for this metric? How do you think about cadence? That I can do quickly and short. No. So cadence, the specific number that I don't mention very often because I think it's pretty silly. Um, each individual is going to have a different range to go through from easy pace through to, you know, 400s. You know, we're not going to have that magical number. Um, and it's going to be determined by leg length, mechanics, um, range of motion. So to tell someone to be at a specific number and that that's going to improve the mechanics, for me, it's pretty dogmatic. So we use your word. So it's like, oh, no, just, you need to be at this number. Um, you can have, so for example, so often, you know, say like 170 would be a low a low number, but we could be the exact same height. Um, you could be moving perfectly, minimal ground contact, maximum flight. So to run at an easy pace, you don't need to take heaps of steps. And it is a really good, efficient, safe movement. Now I could be running horribly, big overstride increase ground contact and braking force and have 170. We've both got the exact same number. So the number is just an output, much like pace. So for me, using cadence as a measure of change is as silly as using pace as a measure of measure of biomechanical change. Now, what I would say though, is if someone is having a really, really low um, cadence as a result of poor movement by telling someone to increase it what they're doing is just saying just shorten down it can decrease the amount of impact per step and then therefore the ground contact but what they're doing is they're doing their same movement more times and what they would have to do is to restrict movement elsewhere and tighten up just to increase that cadence so it's not a good manner to do it for longevity. It might allow them to start get back into running or reduce impact per step, but there's a far better way to do it. It seems like it's a piece of the puzzle. It's it's one thing you're going to look at, but it's not one of the most important things. No. And like to think of where the number came from, it was like there's a, a study of 10 kilometer elite runners and they were racing each other and they're all running the same pace and elite runners are all pretty similar height and, and stature. So it's no surprise that at pace that they were running with a similar cadence. Now to say that someone who's a, you know, a novice or intermediate runner doing their 40 minute easy run has to have the same number of cadence as those elite runners running a 10 K run. Like for me, it's like that, that does not make sense. So to tell someone to do that, they're just going to try and fit again, square peg round hole and go, okay, I'm just going to try and hit 180. 
Now, a lot of them will either run too fast or they tighten up their stride and they're like, oh, that just feels kind of junky and it's really hard to do. And there's a reason for it because it's not the right way to do it. What about foot strike? I know you've mentioned it briefly. It's not really something that you, you focus on too much, but do you have any general guidelines on foot strike? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a hard one because there is a foot strike that I think is best case scenario. Like we're using a spring loaded stretch shortened cycle to create bounce and fly and flow. And the only way to do that is to actually, you know, have a good mechanic land midfoot, use that um, calf Achilles complex to actually as a rubber band to actually use that kind of catch and release feel. Um, however, I think because it has been a focus, I've like, I've really pulled back on, on, on saying, you know, like that's, that's the best case scenario, but it is the best case scenario as a result of the pattern of movement, the body position, and even something as simple as like, you hear a lot of land underneath your hips or push, even the words like push your hips forward so you can land underneath them. But what we want to try and do is how about we actually change our center of mass so it goes over top of feet rather than trying to pull our feet under center of mass. Once we actually get our center of mass or a body position and our movements over top of feet, we are more likely to be in that landing and now there's no braking force and we can actually create that, you know, that bouncing movement. If we take it to the extreme level and you know, being a bit parochial here, this you know, kangaroo, huge long tendons the way that they actually cover the ground is with a bouncing mechanic because they've got that spring-loaded movement now we don't have that same but what we're trying to do is create an efficient bouncing movement from foot to foot to foot and it is quite dynamic and the only way or the best way we can do that is to utilize all those muscular tendon bone structures in the foot achilles and lower leg to actually kind of take and go take and go yeah, this reminds me of, you know, 2010 when Born to Run came out and then all of a sudden everyone wanted to change their foot strike to a, a forefoot or a midfoot strike. And it was a boon to podiatrists everywhere because it just changed where the load was going. And, you know, they might have started saving their knees, but they sure did have a lot of uh, ankle and foot problems because of that. And what was even worse was like in a minimalist shoe. So no <laughs> exactly. Whatsoever. And they're going, oh, I love this running idea. A, I'm going to do it really, really differently. B, I'm going to do it with no protection. And I'm going to do it a lot more than what I'm used to. Sounds like a recipe for injuries. And, yeah. and it sure was. <laughs> it um, was. Paul, what about the forward lean? Yeah. Um, I mean, we do. Like we think about coming back to the, the physics side of things. We want to have our, our mass in front of our power. But... The way we do it, if we, we think about like the most common cue is like, you know, lean from the ankles. The whole idea is shift our center of mass forward. So why not focus on our center of mass? Find the center of mass, which is different for different people in, in where around in that, in that torso and shift it forward. The reason being is once you start running, your point of focus being the ankles moves the most. So it is the most moving part in the running um, gait. But that's supposed to be your reference point. It's like, how am I leaning from my ankles when they're actually spinning? So you're thinking about my mass is hips to shoulders because everything else is moving parts, being arms and legs. So how can we actually and where can we put our center of mass and what does that feel like and what, is that, what does that look like as well, depending on the individual, to have that center of mass forward of um, hips and power? 
how do we do that? Is, is there like, is there a simple cue that we can sort of internalize that will help us put our center of mass a little bit forward without kind of relying on that lean from the ankles advice? Yeah. Um, I mean, my well, understanding then, is that that's the best we have. You know, I'd rather yeah. do that than lean from the waist. Yeah, well, exactly. You don't want to hinge from the, hinge from the waist by any means because your bum's going to go back. I mean, think about running as being, you know, movement and counter movement, position and counter position. So if your position's off, your counter position's even further off and then you've got to kind of compensate for it and then everything just starts to kind of compensate for it. Um, look, short answer is no, it's not a simple version because if, if you are um, extending through your thoracic and arching and pushing the chest out or even through lumbar, just by thinking about the center of mass isn't going to be a good fix until you change the shape into a nice neutral shape and stack it properly and then you can actually change it. Normally, you get a better outcome from actually changing the shape of spine and thoracic because then it actually changes that center of mass as an outcome. Then you can actually change the center of mass a little bit on top of that. So it's probably more about a shape of torso rather than is about just kind of get your center of mass forward because it is difficult if you're spinal shape is off. It, it sounds like that one of your big theses about running form is that the torso is super important super and important. that's where your mass is. And, and if we can get that into the right position, a lot of other things tend to take care of themselves. Is that right? They will be improved um, for sure. Take yeah. care of themselves depending on what, say, particularly what the hips down are doing. There's my so, optimism again. Yeah, it is, which is, which is <laughs> great. But if we think about, so someone like, um, I don't know if you know, a guy called Brett Robinson, he's the Australian uh, marathon record holder just recently. We've been working together for a while and it started off because he's been getting stitches through diaphragm because he has this big um, rib flare position and he also pulled back into it. So he's creating kind of you know cramps in that area. Now, his leg pattern and his movements, hips down, really good, really smooth, in good sequence. But everything above was influencing it and affecting it. So by changing exactly what you're talking about, yes, everything else fell into place because he already had really good movement patterns and positioning of legs. Now, that's not the case for everyone. As we talked about, the lower leg dominant or an overstride or um, they could be creating movements through like rotation through hips. So for some, yes, is the short answer, but for others, no. And it just depends on what they're doing, bottom half. I think I need to go get myself a, a running form evaluation. I think it would be fascinating. Well, it's um, always, I think what there's always been available is the, the testing of it and the biomechanical analysis of what current is. The gap has been... Well, and then you get feedback of going, okay, well, you've got hip drop here or you land here or you, you know, spend more time on your right foot there. Or like, so the, the information and data that anyone can get has been around and is really, really scientific and really detailed. It's about most people go away and go, okay, well, what do I do from there? It's like, oh, well, you've got to change that. What do you mean? It's like, you've got to get more knee drive. You've got to even that out and you've got to put this position in, you know, and you go, well, how does that work so the gap is 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 there um but it is also really good information to get when you actually see all that stuff and then what it'll do is tell the story as to why you're getting stress points in certain parts of the body you know like if you repeatedly use a part of the body that maybe isn't the, the best case part 
you'll feel it because you're tight in those areas or you break down in those areas. And then when you see it in the video, you're like, oh, that's the movement I'm doing. And no wonder I'm getting a ductor tightness or, you know, I'm loading up on my right side more so than my left because I'm spending more time there. So the information you get is great. It's just about what happens from there. Yeah. And that's true for so many things, you know, it's like getting a blood test and not having a doctor to go over the results or, you know, even with our fancy GPS watches, a lot of this data is really interesting, but most runners look at it and go, okay, now what, you know, it's, it's very difficult to actually, um, make that data actionable and figure out how to alter your training because of it. Or what implements that, like I said, influences that data, you know? So you can right. go, oh, okay, well, it left and right's off. And I'll oh, just try and make it even. Well, hang on. Well, what movements are you making and where are you making them that's actually going to create that imbalance in the first place? And often it's a long way away from where someone is actually going to place their attention. Paul, this has been just a true masterclass on running form that I, I so appreciate and has challenged me on several things about form that I've believed for a long time. Is there anything I might have missed that you want to add here at the end about running form that might help our listeners, whether it's ways of diagnosing certain problems, ways of fixing certain problems, or or even just being more aware of things so that you can then start the journey of improving your technique? Yeah, I think awareness is always the, the key. Like we talked about taking the video or taking some video footage you know, front, back, side, so that someone can actually get a visual understanding of what they do because so few people actually re- record themselves to get an understanding. What they'll see is like the the, the race photos and they're like, oh, I need to be in like a specific moment in time to get a really good shot. Like I always seem to be in a, you know, shit position. And as we said before, like the photos don't lie or the video doesn't lie. So what it can do is actually give you that, that um, awareness what i'd also do is actually get or ask or tell people to say okay when you are going out running start to place focus in parts of the body specifically as you're running like you know spend 30 seconds to a minute going okay what is my right arm doing what movement is it making without changing anything just placing awareness and then going to left and thinking okay what is it doing does it feel the same does it feel different and if I was to draw a line on the side of the body, is it making the same line or is it, is it different? And what is it, what is it creating that difference? And just start to kind of work down through the body. Am I holding any tension through shoulders? Where specifically? Because it's easy to say relax, but it's actually about what, what muscles are engaged and switched on, switch those specific muscles off. And what we'll see a lot of time is like people just kind of drop their hands and, you know, their wrists will be relaxed, but that's not relaxing shoulders. That's just floppy wrists, completely separate parts of the body, but that's the, the, the relaxing portion. It's about where am I holding tension? Why am I holding tension? I'm just starting to work down to create that awareness. This has been great, Paul. I think our listeners are really going to learn a lot. Um, if they want to learn more about you to continue their, their learning about technique, are you on the internet somewhere where they could find out more about you and what you offer? Certainly am. Um, tbrunner.com is, um, is the website that has a lot of information um, in regards to actual form um, or, or possibilities of doing some form coaching or, or even self-coaching and self-diagnosis stuff. So that's all there. Or even just something um, as simple as like on Instagram at the balanced runner, all one word. Um, you know, I'll put up stories of athletes that I work with, um, some tips every now and again, or just like some old way, new way videos for people to see the, the positive changes that can be 
made, even just in one session. Um, so there's you know all sorts of different stuff on on that. Awesome. Well, I'll include show links to that on the Strength Running site. So if folks don't remember what those links are, you can just find them on Strength Running. Paul, thank you so much for your expertise today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It'll be fun. And there we have it. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show. Share it with your running friends or club, or you can invest in a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com coaching. You can learn more about form cues, how to implement them in your training with our free form cues cheat sheet at strengthrunning.com cues. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. Use their links and discount codes to support the podcast and indicate to our sponsors they should continue sponsoring the show. First, let's get you some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Elemental Labs, is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning. And this does not have to be your first purchase. You're going to get a sample pack with every flavor, so you can try them all out before deciding what you like best. Personally, watermelon is my favorite. I probably have two years worth of Element stacked up in my kitchen, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. And I'm now in the habit of giving away boxes of Element at group runs around Denver and Boulder, and everyone loves this stuff. It can also be a helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're running long or if you're doing a really tough workout, especially now that the weather's getting a little bit warmer here in the U.S. And if you sometimes feel overly tired or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness after long runs or workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or a deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat, with Elemental Labs. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, I admittedly like to have some element if I've had a few adult beverages and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. Check them out at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning. You'll get your free sample pack gift with your purchase, and you can get your hydration optimized for the upcoming spring and summer seasons. We're also supported by the Gold Coast Marathon in Queensland, Australia. That's coming up on July 2nd. Go to goldcoastmarathon.com.au to sign up today. Get yourself a memory of a lifetime and commit to this amazing destination race in one of the most beautiful countries that I've ever visited. You can run the marathon or any distance down to 5K, but the marathon course is flat and fast with only 75 meters of elevation gain. And over 60% of finishers self-report a PR at the end of the race. Now, I spent six weeks in Australia, with one of them being in Coolangatta in the Gold Coast. The beaches are stunning, the people are friendly, and the natural environment of this region is just so beautiful. It's actually the holiday capital of Australia because of its beaches, theme parks, and rainforests. If I could go back there and run this race with you, I would in a heartbeat. The Gold Coast Marathon is a World Athletics Label road race, and this will be the 43rd running of it. Get yourself that shiny new PR on a fast course with a destination race you're going to love at the Gold Coast Marathon on July 2nd. Learn more at goldcoastmarathon.com.au, but don't wait because early bird pricing ends on April 28th. All right, that's our show, runners. 
Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing this show with your friends. Support us by using our sponsor links or discount codes, reviewing the podcast, or getting a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. And if you have a question for me, don't hesitate to reach out on any platform. Until next time.